Hey folks, Jeff here. I'm here this morning again with my dear brother, Dr. Keith Witt. Good morning, Keith. Good morning, Jeff. How are you doing today? Doing really good. It's always good to talk to you. How are you? I'm doing good. You're in Santa Barbara. I'm here in Boulder, and uh-huh. I think we have a good connection. It's a beautiful day. <laughs> so we wanted to talk today about shame, mm-hmm. which is you know a really juicy topic. I mean, I can feel it even as I bring it up. Mm-hmm. And you've done a lot of work, a lot of thinking on this. You wrote a book called The Gift of Shame, which yeah. I think is a very challenging title. <laughs> and <laughs> so I guess we just start there, Keith, with what do you mean by the gift of shame? Shame is a social emotion. Shame is an emotion that involves um, a being observed or observing ourselves or someone else with approval or disapproval. And when human beings experience themselves as disapproved of, their nervous system goes into a parasympathetic affect that is one of the shame family of emotions, embarrassment, shame, guilt, chagrin, regret, that kind of stuff. And they're really powerful, aren't they? They can kill us. The human nervous system responds to alarm with fight, flight, and freeze. Freeze is a parasympathetic collapse. If you take shame and it just keeps feeding on itself and it goes all the way down, the, the nervous system actually will collapse. People will go into a into coma uh, and die. Um, uh, hey, would you say that this happens in both the lower left and lower right in the sense that we feel that embarrassment and we feel shame? Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have a story that we tell about it. And we have meaning that we make around all of that. But there's also something that's happening in the substance between us, right? Exactly. The lower right. Mm-hmm. It's actually it, more neurological or, or, you know. Intensely. As, as everything is always tetra-enacted. Um, yes. The subjective we space, the hermeneutic of relationship runs off of whether we feel in concordance with each other, that's the hermeneutic, or discordance with each other. And, and because every, we're, we're always seeking coherence, when people are talking, if they're, unless they're fighting, you know, unless they're you know, like debating, you know, I'm just making my point, you're making your point, we're hammering each other, if we're actually looking for shared meaning, if it's an actual dialectic, we're reaching for greater concordance, which subjectively is felt as approval. We, our nervous systems like approval, that, that sense of no. being approved of and approving. If there's a discordance, there's a sense of disapproval. You know, I'll disapprove of you or me or you'll disapprove of me. And you. When one of us feels disapproved of, our nervous system instantiates a shame emotion. Shame, guilt, chagrin, embarrassment, that kind of stuff. And then we'll go into characteristic responses to that shame emotion. And those characteristic responses, how we train those throughout our development and how we process them and how we grow, will determine to a large extent how happy we are, how good our relationships are, how we move through the world, our spirituality, pretty much everything. Yeah. And, no, I can see that. I mean, I can feel even to the degree that I've grown and developed and, you know, different therapies and so forth, a lot of it has been sort of just aerating or somehow making that that sort of base of shame mm-hmm. that you know is so painful and and, and so you know ran me in, in, in a certain way to just soften that yeah and to work with it and to become a little more friendly to it this is why to see it as a gift how does that become a gift 
So it would help if I just explained how shame fits into our neurobiological development. Perfect. I think, I think that would help. So all mammals, when they reach the age of human toddlers, okay, this is all mammals, have uh, the capacity to experience a shame emotion. With human infants, somewhere between the ages of 9 and 12 months, they develop the, the ability to walk, they develop the, the knowledge that they need to seek out a caregiver for comfort when they're distressed. That becomes a conscious uh, knowledge. It's more non-conscious before that. And they develop the capacity to experience shame when there's a nonverbal signal of disapproval from caregivers. Um, and a typical shame emotion is a, an infant, a child, they don't have language, but you know, mom looks at baby 12 months old and, and the baby is reaching for the electrical outlet she goes no so what happens that nervous system of that infant registers that disapproval and instantly a shame reaction is instantiated the baby's face goes slack the muscles of their neck and chest weaken their eyes lower they begin to blush and they're immobilized and then because sometimes the kids will begin to cry. They can't self-regulate this at this particular point, not, a, not in a healthy fashion particularly. So mom goes, picks the baby up, and says, look, it's okay, just don't reach for the cord. With, if it's a securely attached child, he'll be back to happy, sympathetic arousal, which is where babies spend, most kids spend their time the first two years, mostly healthy kids, within 10 seconds. But a little bit of social learning has taken place. You know, he's a little bit less likely to reach for the electric socket. This is how mammals, with approval and disapproval and modeling, this is how mammals pass on social learning to their offspring, which gave them an incredibly huge advantage over reptiles. Meaning the age of mammals was run off of the capacity of mammals to pass social learning on, and this is the main mechanism of doing it. The normal human, the average baby in America hears the word no on the average of every eight minutes of its waking life. Every eight minutes. And so, and, and there's nonverbal signals all the time. And you'll see this with infants. Considering well, it takes 10 minutes to re-regulate, no wonder we're all neurotic. No, 10 seconds. 10 seconds. Oh, 10 seconds. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, oh, 10, 10 minutes. No, no, 10, I might have. And if I did, I am sorry. <laughs> and when I, want, I want to point this out. So, you know, I just said I'm sorry. Okay, so also we as human <laughs> beings are programmed to want things to be fair. We're programmed to want to care for other people and we're programmed to share. Human groups in, in circumstances are genetically programmed, you know, if there's enough stuff around to do that. And so we'll feel ashamed if we have done something that feels unfair or uncaring um, and so on. And so if, 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 you know, if somebody's done that to us, we feel injured. Now, if a person says, I'm sorry, essentially they're saying is, I am experiencing a shame emotion because I know I did something wrong. And there's an implied contract that I'm going to do less of that in the future. Fairness has been restored, and now the hermeneutic of us now has been healed, and we can go on. And this is why people will come in, and one of the major complaints that people have about parents or lovers, and sometimes kids, particularly people that have avoidant attachment or kind of shut down, is they say they never say they're sorry. And so what happens is they'll do something that feels unfair, and they have inhibitions that I'll talk about 
um, with defensive states. They have defensive states that stop them from saying, I'm sorry, and so they won't do it. And then so there's a feeling of injustice in the relationship. The hermeneutic now is yeah. discordant. And because of their refusal to apologize, that they don't establish social justice. And then that creates an ongoing wound in the relationship, wounds that can kill a marriage or a love affair or a relationship with a parent. But people don't say I'm sorry because of the defensive mechanism of they don't want to feel it, right? And the, well, the way that happens is no parent is perfect. So that this baby has the capacity to learn to have social learning. For the first 10 years of a kid's life, they really can't have the, they don't have the neurological um, architecture to self-observe and, and self-regulate shame emotions conceptually. So what happens? Their nervous systems respond to this painful affect by avoiding it. They'll deny it. They'll blame somebody else. I didn't do it. Jimmy did it. No. And, you know, they'll kick the dog. They'll scapegoat. They'll do projective identification. They'll take the shameful part of themselves, project it onto somebody else, and then attack them. In other words, Freud thought that a lot of the defenses arose out of the, the people's um, uh, unconscious adjusting to anxiety. I think that he only was half right. I think that um, most of the defenses arise out of us unconsciously, our nervous systems, regulating shame emotions. And to the extent that we were not attended to, not attuned to as infants, we have capacities for dissociation. Every defense involves some kind of dissociation. And so later on, we go, we, we look, somebody threatens you, say. So, you know, somebody's mean to Jeff. Jeff's nervous system feels that threat and goes into a defensive state. You know, the nervous system protects. And that defensive state involves, you dissociate from the moment and you have amplified or numbed emotions. You have some kind of distorted perspective, some kind of distorted sto story. You have a destructive impulse and you have diminished capacities for empathy and self-reflection. That defensive state uh, prepares you to, to defend yourself, but it also disconnects you from other person. Those defensive states are run by shame emotions, and, and overwhelmingly, we don't want to, our nervous systems, avoid the experience of shame. And so the things that the culture is ashamed of, the culture doesn't look at. And so every culture, you can see taboos, blind spots. All those things are marked by things that the culture finds um, shameful. And we see it a lot with sexual stuff. We see it a lot with violence and so on. And so children can develop with self-awareness. Self-awareness evolutionarily only really showed up in the last 200,000 years. Our nervous systems are primed to develop robust defensive systems driven by shame where we go into these reactions and we kind of avoid what's going on, self-awareness, self-reflection. They develop these really robust defensive systems well before our brains, our, our consciousness is mature, mature enough to self-regulate them. Because the best way to self-regulate a shame re reaction is to go, oh, I'm ashamed. Shame means I'm violating some kind of interior standard. Okay, so if I am, I should follow the standard, or if the standard is unreasonable, I should refine that standard. And this is exactly how people develop morally. Um, we don't trade in our values as we grow. We refine them. It's interesting how fundamental shame is as a sort of an, a, a, an engine of development in a way. Yeah. Um, when you think of that no, that's fundamental to good parenting is to limit the child and to, to protect the child. And that's the child. In, in a way, it's our first 
experience of being separate from the oceanic connection with mother, I would think, right? Exactly. The nervous system, child's nervous system, when the parent looks at, at him or her with disapproval, their nervous system now is relating temporarily to their parent as if they're a stranger. Yes. They have been disconnected effectively from that parent, which is intensely distressing to the child. Yes. And if it's in a disapproval, yeah. they'll feel ashamed. And well, now this is, if well, writ large, this is the being cast out of the Garden of Eden, too. Oh, yeah. Because it turned out that all of a sudden Adam and Eve were ashamed of their nakedness. They were cast out of the Garden of basically pre-self-consciousness. Yeah, they ate from the tree of knowledge. And when we develop self-awareness with language, you know, theory of mind uh, for two or three years old, we can now observe ourselves. And if we observe ourselves violating a standard, we will feel ashamed and go into a defensive reaction interiorly. And also because around 16 months, infants' nervous systems develop the capacity to hide affect from caregivers. And so kids learn to hide the shame from caregivers and from themselves. Now, this hiding of the shame, turning away from it, remember shame is turning away, looking down, yeah. uh, looking yeah. away. What that does is it makes it harder for us when we violate a rule to examine the process. We want to uh, avoid the process. And yes, the, these, therefore, these shame dynamics are the engine that drives social learning, and it is not just an okay idea, it is necessary for parents to appropriately and consistently shame their children to develop pro-social children and to help them become thriving, healthy, self-aware people. We need to shame so our children you, appropriately. How do you shame your children appropriately? Like, Glad give me an example. I'm, Glad you asked that. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, so, you know, uh, <laughs> so you walk out in this backyard. I just, I just planted my, uh, my kale, all right? Go back in the backyard, and there's my three-year-old with their little shovel digging up my kale, okay? So I look at him, and I go, no, don't do that. You know, I, you notice I... My, now, you can't see my face, but my face has a disapproving expression. My voice has, I don't like what you're doing, and there's the no. Okay, he looks up at me and has a variety. First of all, he feels disapproved and he has a shame reaction. Now, it can go in a lot of different directions. Um, usually what happens with the nervous system when they're shamed is they go into shame, humiliation, and then rage because it's an over, you've, you, you exceed what um, a lot of neuroscientists call your window of tolerance for affect, and you, then you go into anger. So you might get mad at me. Or if he feels pretty secure, he'll feel bad. He'll go that thing of blushing, looking down, weak knees, weak chest. And I'll go, and you know, since he has language at three, I said, look, when I plant something, you don't dig it up. You don't dig over here where, you know, it's okay to dig. And he'll go, okay, I'm sorry. And I'll go, that's fine. I'll give him a kiss. He has now has some social learning. Now, what I have to do as a parent is I have to go very quickly from that disapproving tone and look to that, kind, that caring, compassionate, patient tone and look, create social learning, and then give him the subjective sense of now we're moving on, you are forgiven. And again, if you, as a therapist, how many times have I heard somebody say, my parent, my mom used to hold a grudge? 
She'd stay mad. My dad would just be mad. You know, he'd hit me and then he'd be mean to me. Okay. Well, what that does is that artificially extends that window into a toxic level. Basically gives the kid the message, I want you to continue to punish yourself with self-loathing. Kid's nervous system will learn that and begin to instantiate that as a defensive pattern. And then that turns into symptoms later on in life. Um, and then, you know, they come into therapy and in the context of a caring environment where there's acceptance and compassion, you'll look at that dynamic and you'll encourage them to go back and, and um, reconsolidate those memories to, to, to say, okay, you have a value here of not disappointing your parent, but, you know, the thing that you need to punish yourself, you know, that, that value really is self-destructive. So that needs to be refined to when I make a mistake, feel bad for a little bit, and then I either follow the rule or refine the rule and move on and feel okay about myself. That's a, that's a better value. And so the subjective experience of feeling the more compassion and more fairness with that value combined with um, the, the re-stimulation of the original um, experience, you put those things together and then brains, because brains are always going towards greater coherence, brains will take that and they'll integrate that and there'll be less symptom and there'll be more compassion in that area. And you do that enough times and people's values are refined. And since we're all, we're all wired to um, care and be fair and share with each other, as, as Lindley Taggart says, if we have a social surround that supports that, we'll do okay. But if we have a social surround that doesn't, then we'll begin to develop interior distortions that reflect the cultural distortions, which is why the people in the East Bloc countries are, have, have so often been in the, listed by the UN as the um, unhappy people in fascist governments are, are generally unhappy because that lack of fairness creates kind of a pervasive depression um, throughout the culture. And so, the, would you talk about these symptoms? I think that European example is is a good one, culture wide, and, mm -hmm. and we do take those on. Uh, what do you see when people come in? Uh, what what's the presenting problem? Uh, that, that some of this inability to deal with shame or shame being ramped up too much to metabolize. What's that look like? Someone will come in and they'll go, I'm depressed. I'll go, what do you mean? They'll go, well, I'm just kind of a bad person. I feel like a bad person all the time. And so we'll kind of explore what goes on. We find out that there's a lot of critical self-critical self judgment that they have been practicing their whole life. You know, I'm not good enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not skinny enough. Um, you know, I'm, I'm selfish. A lot of the suffering of the world comes from ignorance, dissociation, and values, principles um, that are, are not coherent with our drives and the way that we actually are. The way that agrarian religion really controlled their people is they created uh, religious epistemologies where basically if you bought into the epistemology, you were always bad. And the only way you could feel better temporarily is if God, as mediated by priest, said, okay, you're okay now for a little bit. But then you'll, you go back immediately to being mad because they created value systems that were so at odds with how people are actually wired to work that everybody just walked around knowing that they were bad all the time. And yet we know that that was an appropriate uh, move forward in evolution. That was an appropriate um, move forward, yes. But, but why? Because, not because that was particularly, you know, there, there's, you know, there's healthy and unhealthy manifestations of it, but look what came before that. 
Yeah. <laughs> and before that is, yeah. yeah, do what I want or I'll cut off your arm. Mammalian uh, cultures that, occupy, you know, hyenas occupy, uh, work that way. You know, they're intensely social, but they're brutal. <laughs> you know, that kind of brutality is, um, uh, at least around humans, really goes against those innate desires that we have to share and care and be fair. And so ultimately, as people grow, they're going to want to go to the next level. And so what do they want? They want these rigid systems that are going to moderate the more violent members. And everybody will kind of go along with the restrictions because then you don't have a power god kicking your ass all the time. Yeah. Well, and that's true, I guess, with kids too then. I mean, we, I, I suppose it's hard to get it just exactly right as a parent. And, yeah. of course, every, everybody's subject to the cultural you know, pathologies. Yeah. So, um, you know, we have to work our way through these. And this is one of the great things about therapy in general and, and, and especially integral therapy where we start to really uh, be able to see our shame as an object, right? Yeah, that's self-awareness. And, you know, when does that happen? It happens when we're, our capacity, when we're formal operational, shows up around 11 to 14. And our brain's not fully mature with self-reflection and empathy till 26. That capacity for self-observation gives us some room to begin to take charge of our own evolution, our own ontological evolution. And so what we want to do, we don't want, the, all the therapies that said, or the people that say we want to eliminate shame, completely got, this is why it's a misunderstood emotion, completely got it wrong. You know, shame is an emotion, sadness is an emotion, anger is an emotion. Do we want to get rid of sadness? Do we want to get rid of anger? You know, grief is a painful yeah. emotion. Do we want to get rid of grief? No. But any emotion that is, 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 is self-amplified through interior distortions, through defensive states, will become toxic. You know, you know it'll hurt our brains, hurt our bodies, create cortisol rushes, it kill neurons. It, you know, it's bad for us. But any emotion that is in harmony with our biological drives, you know, with our sense of ourselves in whatever the hierarchy of the culture that we're in, and within our own hermeneutic about what we believe is good, any emotion within, you know, that range, you know, emotions, you know, vibrate, they go back and forth, we go in and out of them, that's going to be pro-social and pro-life. That's going to be good for us. And so shame is like that. If we continue to grow, you know, I'll feel guilty if I don't meditate in the morning, okay? Okay, so that's a shame emotion. But that's my shame emotion reminding me, Keith, you feel better when you meditate in the morning. You know, I'll feel a shame emotion if I order a third glass of wine because I know I'm just going to feel a little worse in the morning. Okay, that shame emotion is guiding me to be more regulated with how I know Keith lives his life. Okay? Right. Uh, eventually, you begin to feel a little bit guilty when you don't feel one with everything arising. Oh, I just lost my sense of unity. You know, it's a little bit of, oh, damn, you know. And then you, you go back to unity with everything that arises. Eventually, you know, this, that, that whole dynamic can guide you to feel unity with God more consistently. Um, yeah. And in terms of you exactly. and me. So you're saying really all the, way, all the way up and all the way down. All the way up uh, and all the way down. And between you and me. You know, if, if I feel you disapproving of me, because for a variety of reasons, because I'm a human being, you're a human being, but because you're my friend and I care about your attention, then either I'll go into a defensive state, you know, blame you or deny it or get weird or get passive aggressive. You know, you can get passive aggressive and amplify shame to the extent that you don't change anything. 
which is a passive-aggressive response. Or you can, you know, go into the other things. Or I can say, oh, Jeff disapproves of me. You know, Jeff has good, you know, what's valid about that? If there's something valid about that, what do I do? Well, I apologize to you to create a sense of social fairness, which gives you a chance to forgive me, which gives me a chance to feel forgiven, which kind of heals our social wound. And whatever the value is I violated, I either am more resolved to change that value or I refine that value so it's a better value. There's a subjective contract below the surface that when I apologize and you receive my apology, that a little bit of social change towards, social, towards fairness is going to happen. And that makes me a little safer with you and you a little safer with me. It, so in the hermeneutic, that is a central mechanism for all social interaction and all development. Well, and and, it's wonderful when you get to a stage with people where you really can hear criticism and yeah. things that would normally just contract us into a ball. Yeah, you and know. just feel it. Yeah. You know, uh, it's really that that just feel it part is a big part of the therapy too, right? You just really oh, yeah. allow these feelings to manifest. Yeah, you know, if you look back at signature points of your life, some of them are going to be shame points. You know, they're going to be points where, wow, out of that, you know, in AA, they call it hitting bottom. I remember once uh, Becky and I were having a big fight. We had just moved in together, and we were so scared of intimacy that the two of us had rented a four-bedroom house. So we had two rooms. You know, that's funny. Anyway, I was being a dick one night. You know, and so she said, I'm going to put up with this. So she was putting on her rabbit skin coat. I remember that coat vividly. And she says, I'm leaving. And, I, and all of a sudden, I realized that she was relating to me as such an asshole and so unsafe that she was going to walk out of the house. And it, I felt this overwhelming sense of shame burst into tears. Just burst into tears. And I said, I'm sorry, and don't go. Okay. That moment was a seminal moment for me. I realized that I had a capacity, you know, learn from a somewhat, I had some violence in my, in my development that, that would turn me into a bully when I was distressed enough. And I saw that really in a way that I hadn't seen it before, was overwhelmed with shame, didn't defend against it, and decided after that, that's not okay with me to bully anybody. That's just really bad. You know, never, not, not begging, not anybody. And so there was a before and after signature event that really helped my development. But it, would, it had to do with an extraordinary amount of shame that I was able to actually hold on to and examine at that moment. Yeah. yeah. No, it's true. I mean, that, that kind of shaming and, and, of course, being publicly shamed, this is why people are the, the, the number one fear of human beings is public speaking. The idea of getting up in front of people and not looking good. Yeah, well, think for uh, just horrible. I mean, just it's the worst. But think for just a moment about public humiliation. Think about a hunter-gatherer group. Okay, you have a hunter-gatherer group, and somebody, say a guy, violates the norm so much that everybody is totally pissed at him, totally furious at him for having violated some some rule, and angry, and anger makes us want to attack, makes us want to hurt that person. Now, in that hunter-gatherer group, if we attack that person physically, we're going to lose a valuable member, potentially. But what if we publicly humiliate them and attack them psychically? Okay, yeah. we publicly humiliate them, attack them psychically. Now, if they become contrite, 
if they take their public humiliation, it becomes a rite of, of initiation. We can admire them enduring their public humiliation with, with fortitude. We can admire them making a decision to be better in the tribe. And then social learning takes place. The tribe is now more pro-social. We have not lost a member. And that capacity for public humiliation has then protected that particular tribe um, from losing a valuable member. Okay. Yep. So public humiliation has become an alternative to physical violence, way up-leveling, huge yep. up-leveling. Well, and you're saying that that's, that's done in all mammals. All mammals. Yeah. You can't, you know, if mammals are always adjusting to each other with actual physical violence, how could mammals be in association with each other? They couldn't. They just would kill each other. Yeah. You know, there has to be symbolic, and those symbolic forms of social regulation involve nonverbal expressions of approval and disapproval. The wolves will lick and, you know, play in approval and they'll snarl and snap in disapproval. And that is accessing the very same circuits that are accessed in human beings, except since we're human beings and we exist in the past, present, and future, and we can imagine things, we can also have shame that fills the universe. I can imagine myself doing something bad, feel shame about it, start punishing myself for it, having never, ever done it. And I can have a, so, I can have a social construct like religion that says, they, you know, it's not don't fuck your, mother, your, your, your wife, okay, your, your neighbor's wife. It says don't covet her. Okay, so I can look at myself coveting my neighbor's wife, and of course I'm coveting her. She's a babe, right? But now I feel ashamed because I'm coveting her, even though I've never even laid a hand on her. Okay? Right. Okay, so our capacity for imagination really can dysregulate us if it's combined with the shame dynamics and not regulated by a deeper level of compassion and wisdom. This is what I mean by having principles that are not consistent with our psychology and with our drive. Well, and it's, you just see the fallout from that uh, all around us. People are in all sorts of contractions around something that they're just so deeply ashamed of. Yeah. And you, you mentioned that one of the things that we can do with each other, as, as hunter-gatherers might have, have even done, is to admire somebody who endures their shame with fortitude. Yeah, it becomes and an I, initiation. I think of, uh, yeah, I know, and I think of uh, Bill Clinton. Yeah. Think of Anthony Weiner. Oh, God. Huge subject, huge uh, public humiliation going on right now. And I was just, just thinking about the difference between the two of them. Completely that, different. Uh, yeah. Bill Clinton, it was a long time ago, so we've kind of gotten used to it and we've sort of factored it in. And if you think about it, it's probably worse than what Weiner did. He was in the Oval Office, it was a real person, it was an intern, it was somebody uh -huh. in his employ. And yet, he didn't have the option of uh, going away and slinking away and contracting. He was the president of the United States. Yeah. And we kind of had to endure it with him, and he actually just kept on keeping on to the point where, at, at this point now, when I see him, I think, you stud. I love him. You know, I do too. And Probably Wiener, will. for some reason, I guess it's maybe he just doesn't have the, the, the gravitas or whatever, but I want to pile on with him. Yeah, I want to pile on too. And he's not really acknowledging. You know, one thing that bothers us is people not feeling ashamed. You know, when a bunch of people in Congress vote to, to have half the country lose their food stamps and aren't ashamed of it, I'm outraged by that lack of shame. Yeah. You know, when people, you know, callously, you know, in Texas 
change the voting laws so that blacks and Hispanics can't vote and pretend that they're not doing it. They should be ashamed of that, and they're not. Yes. And I'm offended. You know, that offends my human desire for social justice. You know, they're lying and cheating, and that, you know, they should be ashamed, and they're not. There's not enough shame in that situation. Yes. And if they were ashamed of it, they would look at their values and see that their values are, creating, are turning other people and human beings into objects and categories, which they feel free to oppress because they're in the pocket of special interests and that that's wrong. But because they will, they've dissociated from their shame, because they won't allow themselves to, to, to look, they go into their defensive states with distorted perspectives, their stories, and support their distorted stories. Instead, they create an illusion, and they combine with other people and create a cultural illusion, and then they create social injustice. And countries that have that tend to be less happy countries, and they tend to have more social un- unrest, which has been, which been happening in the United States the last 10 years, when you have a greater disparity between the haves and the have-nots, and you have more distorted stories that are justifying those kinds of things. Right. Well, but they don't see it that way. No, they don't. They see that they're actually doing good because they're protecting the Constitution, because they're uh, protecting the, the sanctity of voting so that nobody can just walk in off the street and people can't vote two or three times. And they have a, a set of facts and a storyline that makes perfect sense to them that not only doesn't shame them, they're proud of it. Well, that's one of the reasons that we have four quadrants, isn't it? Because to, to keep that storyline going, you really got to get rid of the lower right quadrant. Because the lower right quadrant of social research basically puts a hole in the balloon of most of those stories. For instance, social research tells us that if we take little kids and we take mothers and we take families and we invest a lot of resources in them, in their education, in their early development, that 10 or 15 years later, they're producing a lot of creativity and a lot of productivity in the country and there's an enormous amount less crime. But we've got to kind of throw that social research out the window if we want to deny them those resources, don't we? And so the beauty of four quadrants is that if you really pay attention to them, the four quadrants will tell you when you're bullshitting. And if you want to bullshit and get away with it, you've got to just associate from at least one know. of the quadrants. I don't know. I think they got the four quadrants covered, too. I mean, really? Just see that, yeah, totally. I mean, a conservative doesn't see themselves as being anti-poor. They see of course themselves they don't. as this, this. No, well, and they, because they, they have a belief that if you just, and this, this is not even conservative, well, this is, yeah, conservative modernists. Yeah. Hands off. And. Mm-hmm. People will take care of themselves. And actually, they're in some ways pro-shame. Oh, yeah. They're like, let's bring back uh, p- public approbation. Mm-hmm. And let's take care. And let's be ashamed if we don't t- take care of the old lady down the street. But let's do it voluntarily. I'm not sure. arguing for this, Keith, by the way. I- I'm a liberal. I'm yeah, for, I know. You know. I'm for the government doing it. Uh, and I'm for people doing it, too. But I think there's an intelligent way where both all of that comes online. It's more integral, if you will. I completely agree with that. Yeah. Okay. No, I, I agree with that. But my point about that is that, sure, if you take human beings and you put a whole bunch of human beings into an environment where they actually have the opportunity to, to thrive, some of them will decide to be self-destructive. Some of them will be addicts. Some of them will be thieves. Some of them will be rapists. You know, some of that will happen. But if you create a social environment where there's fairness and there's enough resources and there's opportunity, the percentage of people that do all that crap will go down dramatically, and the percentage of people that do good things will go up. Social research has showed us that again and again and again and again. Yeah. 
And so if I'm going to hold on to that belief to the extent that I don't want to invest resources in creating that social context, I have to ignore that research in the lower right quadrant. No problem. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, well, Blue does not care know, about science. That's true. Well, well, Blue doesn't for sure. But, yeah. you know, I, I just, I guess my objection a little bit is that the idea that these people are deluded. They're, oh. They actually have a different physics of facts and research and beliefs and psychic structures that where it makes perfect sense to them. Well, first of all, I agree, I agree with that completely. What you're getting from me is my profound disapproval of belief systems that objectify other human beings. And there's a part of me that just goes crazy with disapproval. You know, it's like slavery. You know, for me, slavery is the ultimate objectification of another human being. And so what I'm doing is taking my moral disapproval of that objectification process and I'm putting it basically on that worldview. <laughs> and I, you know, I, you know that's, that's not fair to you know, get pissed off at an well, entire worldview. I, I guess, the, yeah, yeah, fair enough. And, and I object to worldviews that objectify people too. Yeah. Uh, of course, that's uh, welcome to the human, human history. That's true. Uh, and, uh, but this is what we're working with, and this is um, why we <clears throat> want to, at least at the leading edge of development as we fancy ourselves, mm-hmm. We want to be able to, you know, feel into all of it and, mm-hmm. uh, and work out the, what comes up, you know, work out the shame even that I still feel like this Trayvon Martin, uh, well, yeah, George too. Zimmerman thing. You know, there's a shame that's cultural that comes out of slavery, the original sin yep. of the founding of this country that I want to feel. Yeah. You know, that's good, because the more I feel that, and I've actually seen myself. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have my reactions to a young black man in a hoodie. Sure. But not as bad as I did two months ago. Mm Mm-hmm. You know why? Because I felt into this, because I looked at that kid, because I listened to his parents. And your values have become refined. Yeah. Yeah, you've refined your values. Yeah. That's what happens when you look at them. When you look at them with an openness and, and compassion and acceptance, your values become refined. They become more mature. Yeah. yeah. And that's I just feel in, like, you know, the world opens up, but I can contain more. And, and that's using your shame dynamics appropriately. And, 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 and to me, the awareness of this um, opens up all kinds of doors. Because generally what people turn away from are the areas where there is uh, shame invested and that turning away and then going into the defensive stage is such a reflexive response people just don't notice it and also that desire for approval of, from ourselves and from other people because remember we're always observing everything including ourselves and so if I'm observing myself violating a rule I'm going to feel a shame emotion and have a reaction to it and if I go into a defensive state I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dig deeper into that defensive state cause more problems if I can regulate to, to uh, an awareness like you were just describing with Trayvon Martin, I can actually grow. I can, I can tolerate that shame and look at my values and my values grow and, and become, and if I'm doing that with you, with another person, our relationship can go into deeper intimacy if we can do that with each other. Yeah. Keith, is there any other piece that you want to bring in? Uh, yeah, yeah, I do. From an integral perspective, the shame dynamics will shift 
with every value mean. And they'll shift with states of consciousness and they'll shift with relationships. And to the extent that we're aware of them, that self-awareness gives us, gives us options. You can almost see development in terms of concentric areas of self-awareness with the willingness to shift perspective towards what's more beautiful, good, and true. The good part of that is the shame dynamics. And so, and that shifting to, to the more what's more beautiful, good, and true then causes us to grow. When we're validating it from all four quadrants, we begin to transcend cultural pathology. Okay. And, and that's a good thing because every culture has blind spots that, that tell us to feel bad about things that we have no you know, reason to feel bad, that, that, that in, from a biological standpoint are bad, bad for us to feel bad about, you know, harmful for us to feel bad about. You know, in, in blue, you feel ashamed when you disagree with the wise elder. Okay. No. Well, so if you grow, your disagreement with the white elder can turn into a dialectic where you can hold that paradox, and then, the, as Rob said in his book, The Elegant Itself, the problem solves itself. That's why that capacity to hold the dialectic while still searching for the beautiful, good, and true, that's a second-tier function that we can consciously cultivate. And if we bring that to bear, the shame emotions become you know, more information to us, just like joy becomes information and love and anger and, and so on. And that's the gift of shame. Yeah. Right on. And you're seeing that when you talk about it happening at different levels and states, tell me a little bit more about that. Let's talk about sex because I like to talk about sex. <laughs> All right, cool. Okay. So um, if I'm in a non-aroused state and I'm sitting with somebody and I go, All right, um, let's talk about oral sex. You know, let's talk about how it feels to have, you know, whatever, you know, you know, my tongue around your clitoris, you know, or, you know, whatever. Okay, that's pretty embarrassing. I mean, I'm a little embarrassed now just saying that. Okay, but if, but if I'm in an aroused state, then engaging in that activity is not, not only not embarrassing, it's totally great. Yeah. So, you know, going back to Wiener, <laughs> Wiener. Wiener, when he was in an aroused state, and Geraldo, when he was in an aroused state, they thought, wow, my dick is so beautiful, or whatever, my body's so beautiful, that it's a really good idea for me to just send this out on the airwaves. They were in a distorted state. You know, he was dissociated from his connection with the social fabric at that moment, didn't appropriately feel a sense of anticipatory shame, Instead, in that aroused state, talked himself into the whole world is going to be as delighted with my dick as I am at this moment, and yeah. wham, look what happened. That is the best explanation I've heard all day. You should be on PBS. <laughs> I am on PBS. <laughs> I'm talking to Jeff Salzman on the Daily Evolver. <laughs> this go. is the people's PBS, Jeff. <laughs> that was very good. Yeah, no, so, and these various states... Uh, that we, we move in and out of, they're the weather of our interiors, you know. They, yeah. Uh, they do change our shame dynamics, don't they, and our whole shame calculation. And if we're aware of that, we can really protect ourselves and other people from a lot of trouble. But if we're not aware of that, and, it, you know, it, it works with type, too. You know, to, an extrovert does not feel um, embarrassed dominating the conversation enough. And so he has to develop some shame connections, enough attunement skills, so that if he's beginning to dominate a conversation, he feels the shift in the intersubjective field and backs off a little bit. 
an introvert will withhold their wisdom from a conversation. And they need to feel a little bit ashamed that they're not contributing because their contribution matters to the social fabric. And so in that situation, the same emotion is, is directing the person into an, a, an entirely different activity um, depending upon what type of person they are. Good. It's so true. And it, it just reminds me of one of the great markers of moving into integral consciousness in general is that we turn towards what's uncomfortable. We turn towards our pain. Yeah, and with interest. Talking about it in spades here. It's like every situation we're in, you know, we can use this sort of shame antenna yeah. to help us optimize, help us be our best. All, and we do it all the time, Jeff. We're, you know, our nervous systems are always monitoring what's attractive or unattractive. That's the beautiful. What fits with our sense of reality and which doesn't, the true. And what feels appropriate or inappropriate, right or wrong, that's the good. That right or wrong element is governed by approval, disapproval, is governed by the, the pleasure we feel at approving of ourselves and being approved of, and the pain that we feel, the shame emotions we feel when we're disapproved of. It's central to the lower left. Without pain, without shame, we don't have a lower left quadrant anymore. It's gone. Wow, yeah. No, it's true. Yeah. Well, How cool is that? Helping us, uh, help, helping us live in this territory. Stake it out, man. It's the gift. Of, you know, I want, I, want to, you know, I want to also tell the story how I discovered this. Okay. I, was, I went through a, a period of intense neuroscience study at one point, I don't know, about 10 years ago. I, I discovered that there had been a lot of research in neuroscience since I'd last checked in, and I, and I had this uncomfortable experience of being left behind. <laughs> really don't like that. And so I kind of reclused myself, and three days a week for, I don't know, about a year, I just studied neuroscience, studied neuroscience, studied neuroscience, studied neuroscience. And so I came upon this study about the shame dynamic happening around 11 to 12 to 13 months. I went, wait a minute. And I started looking at the other studies. I went, wait a minute. I started cross-validating it with social research. I started seeing that there was this whole structure of shame-based approval, disapproval, cultural inculcation that was going on that nobody was talking about. They couldn't see it. And the reason that we couldn't see it is because shame is the look-away emotion. That the whole field had not seen this. Freud didn't see it. Nobody saw it. What they did is they just pathologized the emotion and tried not to think about it instead of recognizing that it informed everything. I got lit up. I wrote that book, The Gift of Shame, published it with Santa Barbara Graduate Institute, and then waited for the world to say, hey, Keith, you know, come teach us about it. And, you know, a few people did, but not, <laughs> not, not a lot. <laughs> yeah. P partly because to this day, when people are invited to examine shame, they really don't want to do it. Um, yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it is. I mean, it really, I, I can feel it myself. The circumstances, experiences, things I've done where, oh, God, I just can't. I just can't. <laughs> you know, I just, it's too painful. I didn't do that. You know, I, I, I can feel that, no problem. I mean, and I can also work on it. I mean, so I can't maybe get my whole head around it or whatever, but I can sit and feel it in my body. You know, just, uh, you know, uh, yeah. begin to unravel the, the knots and clots so that I can hold them up into, you know, empty space. And uh, that's a relief. And that, 
is some progress, and that helps metabolize it. Yes, it does. You know, uh, at the, when you and I first met, remember the Integral Psychotherapy Conference? Yes. Okay, well, when I went to that conference, I was a real pain in the ass to a lot of people because I had a lot of perspectives, and I wasn't one of the presenters. I just showed up with a doc, You know, I had a manuscript that I came with, but, you know, nobody wanted to see my manuscript, and, you know, basically I was in the audience. So I kept raising my hand, causing trouble. <laughs> Finally, the final day, you know, Will Pearson was talking about masculine and feminine, and I just said, wait a minute, you know, and I was disagreeing with her. There were 50 psychologists from all over the world. And finally, she just looked at me and she said, she looked at the audience and says, Keith, you know, what the fuck? She, you know, how many people agree with Keith? You know, so I looked out at the audience. Not one hand was raised of those 50 people. <laughs> you know, total public humiliation. Okay, I kind of remember that. that okay, so I looked over at Willa. So she said to me, she said, Keith, what does that mean to you? And so I, it was one of those great moments. I said, you know, Willow, it means that I've got a blind spot that I need to take care of. And so I'm going to go do that. So what I did is I went home and found a therapist, found a counselor, Patricia Albert, and started working with her. And I said, you know, I've got a big blind spot because, I, you know, these are all really smart people. And there was a moment where they saw something in me that I didn't see. I'm not used to that. And, you know, it really led to basically the most rapid um, ontological developmental period of my life and, and really fed into a lot of the work. You know, I've, I've written seven manuscripts since then and published four books. But it came out of that moment. You know, I could have said, oh, you know, fuck you, Willow, you know, whatever. But no, you know, you know that, that moment of public humiliation said, you know, there's, you know, you got a lot of resources, Keith, but also there's something that needs to be integrated. And, you know, something good's going to happen if you integrate that. And something good has happened. But it came from oh, that, yeah. you know, that, you know, it wasn't all that moment. But that, that moment really is kind of a signature. That's one of Keith's, that's one of my favorite public humiliation experiences of my life. Really. <laughs> Well, God is good. God is good. <laughs> God brings us all the public humiliation we need. Yeah, well, hopefully just just as much as we need and no more. Yeah, hopefully. exactly, please, yeah. Oh, God. You really want to turn humiliation into a, a humiliating experience into a humbling experience as quickly as possible. That's what I think. Exactly. All right, my friend. Well, anything oh. else you need to get off your chest here? <laughs> no. I think this has been a great conversation. It's been fun, Jeff. Yes, it, it, it always is, Keith. And again, Dr. Keith Witt, drkeithwitt.com, Gift of Shame. If people, people want more, what would you have them do, Keith? You know, I have a, a series of lectures. The 14th one is being posted next month, and there's 13 that are posted on my website. There are different emphasis on a whole cos integrally informed cosmology that um, of how to you know live and love and parent and and sex and, and romance and and grow and I suggest people go to my website and check out the teasers on those uh, those lectures and if you want one of them buy them it's the only thing on my website that I sell everything else is free but those lectures really have uh, kind of the organizing principles of what I've discovered to be really useful stuff in, in integral psychotherapy and just being a human being on the planet and living and loving in the world. So check out my lectures. Yeah, and thank you so much for all of your great work, Keith, your life's work. It's really very significant. Uh, you've influenced a lot of us, and uh, it's uh, just much appreciated, my brother. Oh, Jeff, you've influenced me a lot. <laughs> so we have a mutual influence society. <laughs> we do. We do. 
All right. So thanks, folks, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks, Keith. See you next time. Bye-bye.